Before we get into Mark chapter 10, there are two important contextual details we should establish before we transition from chapter 9 to chapter 10. First, as we've mentioned on numerous occasions, Jesus at this point is on a direct and deliberate journey to Jerusalem. He heads south from Caesarea Philippi, from Mount Hermon, to the region of Galilee with the intention of passing through without anyone knowing. He wants to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. He stays the night in Capernaum, more than likely the house of Simon Peter, his headquarters, before heading east to the Jordan River. Taking the Jordan River, he'll progress south to the region of Judea and then up west to Jerusalem, passing through, as we'll see, the cities of Jericho, Bethpage, and Bethany. The second thing we should point out as we transition is that Jesus' lesson on servanthood, the lesson he's just finished communicating to the disciples, that he who desires to be first, what does Jesus say? May he be last and servant of all. This lesson on servanthood that he's wrapping up is now setting the stage for another lesson on marriage and divorce. And isn't it fascinating? that following servanthood, he transitions to marriage. Because anyone that's been married for too long knows that the ultimate test of preferring others, of positioning yourself as being last, least of all, hey, it's tested in the bonds of holy matrimony. So we begin with these two points established with verse 1, chapter 10. So Jesus arose from there, so Capernaum, the region of Galilee, and he came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, and multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them. Our scene of activity, Jesus has left Galilee for the last time, completing what scholars like to refer to as Jesus's Galilean ministry. Jesus will not return again to Galilee apart from the resurrection. Now, since most of the Jews from this area of Galilee, estimated to be anywhere between one to three million, are also making the same pilgrimage to Jerusalem using the same highway, Jesus utilizes the opportunity, it's him, the multitudes, to teach the people, we're told, as was his custom. And I love it. Jesus is going to die for the sins of the world, and he utilizes an opportunity to teach the word, as was his custom. Well, we're told in verse 2 that the Pharisees came. Now, this word came, it signifies intent. This was not an accident. This wasn't by happens chance. It wasn't that their paths accidentally bumped. They came with intent, with purpose. It's not an accident. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? Now, if you've been with us, you will have noted that as we're traveling through Mark, that Mark has dropped a couple of clues. He's kind of kept this up to date concerning a plot that's been hatched to destroy Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, verse 6, a plot began. We're told that the Pharisees went out 
and plotted with the Herodians against Jesus how they might destroy him. So we find that even early in Jesus's ministry, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the political leaders, the Herodians, they're, they're wanting to figure out a way that they can destroy Jesus. Why? Jesus is a threat to their power. He's a threat to their influence. They don't like Jesus. And so even early on, a plot is hatched. They're trying to develop things. Now, last week we noted in Mark chapter nine, verse 31, that the plot begins to take shape. Jesus tells the disciples that the son of man is being betrayed. It's active. This means that whether it's simply the birth in the heart of Judas or has manifested itself in some kind of an actual conversation or dialogue that Judas has had with the Pharisees, the son of man at this point, even as Jesus is making his way, is in the process of being betrayed. Now, you should note that this plot, the plot to arrest and murder Jesus, it needed three conditions to align perfectly. In order to destroy Jesus, the Pharisees would first need a time and a place, preferably away from the multitudes, a, a time of, of privacy, Secondly, they would need due cause or reason to justify arresting and sentencing Jesus to death. And thirdly, they would need a way to sway his support. Now, at this point, Judas, if Judas is already in cahoots with the Pharisees, Judas, an inside man, he can provide both a time and a place. He knows Jesus' comings and goings. He knows the itinerary. He can feed information to Jesus' enemies. So the time and the place, his first condition is easily met. The second condition, due cause, well, with the scribes and the Pharisees being the experts of the law, Jesus in his teaching ministry, he's provided enough that they can twist and warp uh, to provide some kind of due cause. But here's their hang-up. And this is important for the context of their question. The big hang-up, they have two of the three conditions. He's on his way to Jerusalem. They'll be able to pinpoint time, location. They can trump up charges. But the big thing is that they're now running out of time to turn the multitudes against Jesus, which is why they came with intent and they asked him, or literally they kept asking him. As Jesus is traveling and he's teaching the multitudes, the Pharisees keep asking this question and what? Jesus keeps ignoring them. Now, Jesus ignored them because he knew that the question wasn't honest. If you were with us last week and more specifically followed along with our B-sides last week, you'll note that Jesus has no problems with his followers asking questions. We noted that after Jesus was teaching about his death and resurrection, his betrayal, that Peter admits what? That they didn't understand what he was saying and they were afraid to ask. And the problem isn't that they didn't understand. It was that they were afraid to ask. The only way we can often find answers is to ask questions. And Jesus loves questions when they're presented with an honest heart. The problem with the Pharisees, Jesus knew. There wasn't an honest intent behind their question. Their question was to argue, or even better, was to test him. This word testing in the Greek is literally 
to solicit to sin. And the only other person that was guilty of testing Jesus, other than the Pharisees, we find in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, that Satan tested Jesus. You know, it's not good when you're the only other group of people that engage in the same activity as Satan. Like, that's not good company to find yourself in. So Jesus knows this question wasn't honest, and their intent was actually evil. The question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, we mentioned when we started our travels through the Gospel of Mark that we were going to avoid, as often as possible, referencing the other Gospels. This is a study of the Gospel of Mark, but we kind of added a caveat to that, that when it was important for our understanding of what Mark is saying to reference another Gospel's account, well, then we'll include it. Now, this is important because their question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? But Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 adds to the question, for just any reason. Now, the Pharisees, they were not asking Jesus whether or not divorce was lawful. That wasn't debated. Everyone agreed that divorce was lawful. But they were asking Jesus to define, to go on the record, as to what specific reasons warranted divorce. Now, the law of Moses permitted divorce under one set of criteria. Deuteronomy chapter, 14, 20, Deuteronomy chapter 24, we read that when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, well, he can write a certificate of divorce and send her out of his house. Now, here's the problem. Moses' statement, she finds no favor in his eyes, and he has found some uncleanness in her. It was admittedly a little vague. Like, what does that mean? Okay, so divorce is permitted, and these are the criteria, Moses, but could you have elaborated? He doesn't. He leaves it vague, and thus, in this society and in this culture, which really does parallel ours, there were two interpretations. Okay, so in the law, it's permitted under what Moses has classified. She finds no favor, and there's uncleanness. So what then, in regards to an interpretation, can we conclude Moses' intent is? And there was two views. First, you had a liberal view of what Moses is saying. And this was promoted in this day by Rabbi Hillel. Now, Rabbi Hillel taught that this word uncleanness should be interpreted as any sort of discretion, meaning that the liberal view on what Moses is saying is that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. One rabbi even went so far as to say that if a man found another woman that was better looking than his present wife, well, then that would have been uncleanness and provided just reason. As a matter of fact, it would then be a religious duty to get rid of her. If a woman burns your breakfast in the morning, according to the rabbi's view here, it was up to the discretion of the man and if that was viewed as finding fault, no favor, well, he could get rid of her. 
You could divorce under this liberal interpretation of the law for any reason. Now, there was a second view. The second view was the conservative view promoted by Rabbi Shimei. Now, Rabbi Shimei taught that biblically speaking, according to the law, this word uncleanness should be interpreted as only being a reference to sexual immorality, meaning that a man could divorce his wife, but only on grounds of sexual sin. So these are the two arguments. And it was a hot debate. People were divided. Now, the Pharisees, knowing that the population gravitated towards the liberal view, and probably understanding that Jesus, based upon his teaching style, gravitates more towards a, a literal conservative view, they ask him this question. They're wanting Jesus to answer the question on what grounds, what, what legal grounds is there for divorce. Go on the record, Jesus. They're wanting him to do this because if they could get him to take a contrary stand with the popular opinion of the day, what would it do? It would erode his support base among the multitude, hoping then to achieve this third criteria that they needed if they were going to arrest and destroy Jesus once he arrived in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus' answer, his response to the Pharisees' question concerning divorce we're going to address this in three phases. I'll give you the three right from the beginning. Phase number one, Jesus explains the origin of the law. Phase number two, Jesus explains on what grounds divorce was permissible. And then phase three, Jesus reinforces what reasons were not permissible for divorce. So he explains the origin of the law. He explains on what grounds divorce was permissible before reinforcing what reasons were not permissible for divorce. Let's begin with phase one. Jesus explains the origin of the law. He says, verse three, he answered, said to them, what did Moses command you? Well, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered, and he said, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Now note that Jesus, he doesn't here answer their question. As a matter of fact, he kind of skips over the particulars of the law by doing what? He focuses on the origin of the law and he does something very shrewd. You might've missed it. Jesus asks, what did Moses command you? This word command is the Greek verb entello, meaning to order or to command. Now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is playing their game. Why? Because Moses didn't command anything. And the Pharisees, they rightly respond. Note, Moses permitted a man. They use a different word. In the Greek, it's to gain leave. The King James Version it, it translates it that Moses suffered to issue a certificate of divorce. Now, what's the point? What point is Jesus making here? because it's not an accident. The first point here concerning the origin of the law is that Moses did not command, but rather permitted divorce. And that's important. Now, there is a significant difference between commands and concessions, between requiring action, 
versus allowing it. Moses allowed divorce under certain conditions, but he never created a set of absolutes within the law whereby divorce was sanctioned. You should note that something that is allowed by definition is of less importance than something that's required. Simple logic. Thus, the liberal view promoted by Rabbi Hillel was a direct contradiction to the law's original intent. You see, God never desired for the dissolution of a marriage. This precept for divorce was only added in by Moses. Why? As a concession to deal with a sinful, stubborn, hardened people. It's been said, and I like this quote, rather than an expression of God's will, sadly, divorce was a concession to man's willfulness. It should also be mentioned that many scholars see Moses requiring a certificate of divorce be submitted as being a way that Moses is attempting to discourage the act of divorce rather than condone it. And that society, during this day, it was very easy for a man to discard his wife, to divorce his wife. Just with a, with a wand of a hand, it was no big deal. And so by then requiring a certificate, now the man has to go to the office to request a certificate. And thus it must be filled out. Moses is adding in a certain level of accountability and he's ensuring that the decision for divorce couldn't happen on a whim, but that there was a process behind it. Now, the second point concerning the origin of the law that Jesus makes here is he says that divorce only existed, why? Because of the hardness of their heart. This is an interesting phrase, the hardness of their heart, because we've seen this phrase before in our travels through Mark, but it's a different, uh, it has a different implication. An earlier hardening of the heart that we found within Mark gives the idea of a callousness. The Greek word used to describe the process is, is a hardening of the heart, a callousing of the heart. This is a different word. The Greek noun here is skiocardia. Scleros, meaning hard. Cardia, meaning heart. Literally, a hard heart. Now, the derivative of the word, the verb, Scalerno, it means to make dry or hard. And, and this is what fosters the idea behind the word. This verb, what's interesting, is included, it's used in Acts chapter 19 and Romans 9 to describe the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You see, earlier on, when we're told about the hardness of a heart, Jesus is talking about resisting the will of God, resisting the word of God, resisting the work of God to the point that in the process of it, there is a hardening that's taking place within the heart. This is different because Jesus is saying because of the heart, because your heart's already hard. Instead of it being a process, think of this hardness of heart as the result of sin, not the progression. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is telling these Pharisees, that the only reason Moses made a concession for divorce was because of the hardened condition of their heart towards the will of God. Now their question, 
for what lawful reasons can a person get divorced? I'm going to embellish a little, but I think Jesus is replying in this way. This is his point, the underlying uh, issue he's communicating. If we understand the origin of the precept, then we shouldn't consider what lawful reasons exist for divorce. That's the wrong question to ask if you understand the intent. Rather, we should be considering the reasons we shouldn't divorce. If you understand that the only reason the precept exists is because you're hardened, your heart's hard, then you shouldn't be considering how can I divorce, but really what issues exist for me to avoid it? See, Jesus is pushing us back to the origins, to the heart issue. Now, phase two, Jesus, he now explains on what grounds divorce was permissible. Verse six, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, in order to answer their question and explain the logical grounds, the permitted grounds for divorce, Jesus decides it would be helpful to first explain and remind them what God's original intention for marriage was. And we're going to run through a few points here. First, marriage, according to what Jesus is saying here, is divinely inspired. We read, from the beginning of creation, God. The intent, the invention, the design for marriage, the blueprint for matrimony. Jesus is making it clear that it predates what? Anything Moses had to say. From the beginning of creation, before there was the law, before De Deuteronomy 24 came into existence, before any of these things, before the law of Moses at creation, God inspired marriage. But it should also be pointed out that before sin entered the human condition, marriage was also designed. God created marriage for three reasons. Obviously, procreation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, Jesus said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Secondly, you can build the biblical argument that God creating us and forming us the way that we are designed marriage for pleasure. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2, the Shulamite says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. No doubt marriage and the activities that take place under the covenant are supposed to be enjoyed. Your brain receptors have been designed to fire, to enjoy sexual activity. God wired you and made you that way and then said, hey, this is the best way for this activity to be enjoyed. Go for it. So marriage was designed for procreation, for pleasure. But also, and this should be pointed out, from the beginning, God instituted marriage for a third reason, to be a picture. In Ephesians 5, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, for the, head, for the husband is the head of his wife, and also Christ is the head of the church. 
For he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So marriage was designed the blueprint. Yes, it was to make babies, and it was to enjoy the process of making babies, even if babies aren't the outcome. Procreation and pleasure, but it was to be a picture that in the union, in, in the covenant, God is picturing, he's creating something to communicate a point to the world about a relationship he has with his people. Now, we should also point out, from the beginning of creation, God made them. Jesus here, and I had never seen this before from this passage, because this is a marriage passage, but Jesus is affirming something fascinating. He's affirming the creation process that God created, he made them. God created humanity. There seems, at least from the literal interpretation of what Jesus is saying, no room for the process of evolution in regards to mankind. Now, you might have problems with creation versus evolution and whatnot, just as people have problems with Jonah being swallowed by a great fish. But you can't deny the reality that Jesus believed these things to be so. Jesus hearkened back to Jonah in the belly of the fish, saying, just as Jonah was three days and three nights, viewing it in a literal way, and he seems to view the creation process here also in a literal way. We're going to leave the explanation, the expounding of that to one of our B-sides this week. So first, we can note that marriage is divinely inspired. Secondly, marriage, according to Jesus, is founded on gender distinctions. He says, God made them how? Male and female. And then he says, for this reason. Now this phrase, for this reason, is fascinating. Because what is Jesus seeming to indicate? He's seeming to indicate that God created both male and female and established gender roles for, for this reason, for, within mind, the express purpose of marriage. Now, we're not going to deviate here into like a human anatomy class, but let's be honest. The male and the female anatomies have been created uniquely by God specifically for a sexual union to take place in the bond of holy matrimony. God made them male and female so they could have sex in marriage. That's why we find gender distinctions, which means, and I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but what Jesus is indicating is that heterosexual attraction is the only basis for marital union. God made them male and female. And then thirdly, marriage is to be monogamous. The man shall be joined to his wife. Now, in our society, we want to reinterpret things. Well, the meaning of what, uh, what, what man shall be joined to his wife. Well, what is a wife? Can another man be a wife? Can a woman be a husband? Can't we redefine these things? Well, sure, go for it, but Jesus has defined them, right? God made them male and female, and then he says, a man shall be joined to his wife. So Jesus is placing context to the words that he's using. 
1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, Nevertheless, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband, and let the husband render to his wife the affection to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. That marriage, in addition to being based on gender distinctions, it's to be monogamous, that it's supposed to be between one man and one woman. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, knowing that one of the issues facing the church, the early church, was that of polygamy, Paul says that an elder should be the husband of one wife, illustrating that polygamy and polyamory therefore distort God's original intention for marriage between one man and one wife, one woman. The fourth point I want to make here is that marriage, in addition to being monogamous, is consummated, according to Jesus, by heterosexual sex. He says the two. Now, who's the two? In context, it's the man and the wife. And who's the man and the wife? In context, it's the male and the female. This is how Jesus is progressing. The two shall become one flesh. Sex. Sex forges, and we know this, biologically, physically, and emotional, emotionally a connection. When people engage in sexual activity, there is a physical and an emotional bond that's forged through the activity between male and female. This word flesh, the two shall become one flesh. The word flesh is the Greek noun sarx, which is a fascinating word because it means the earthly nature of man apart from the divine. Which is why a man and, and, and a woman can have sex, they can get married, they can have sex, they cannot be Christian. God cannot be in the process. But there is still a forging that takes place physically and emotionally. It's apart from the divine. It is a biological a phenomenon. Now note, what is Jesus implying as well? That homosexual activity fails to achieve the prerequisites required for this one fleshness that God intended for marriage. He says the two shall become one flesh and marriage depends on one flesh, but the two depend on a man and a wife, a male and a female. So homosexual activity is not producing the one fleshness that Jesus is describing that's the prerequisite for marriage. As a matter of fact, Paul goes even a step further in Romans chapter 1, verse 27, talking about when we abandon following God and we instead worship creation over the creator, when we remove God from the equation, that we end up doing all kinds of weird things to the point for this reason, God gave people to, up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men, with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. The intention here is not to go on to a, a deal of, of gay marriage or homosexuality, but to define what Jesus intends by marriage. This is our point. And Jesus seems to imply that homosexual activity fails to achieve a prerequisite for marriage, and that is one fleshness. The fifth point here. Marriage is a miracle performed by God. Jesus even says it. He says, what God has joined together. 
this phrase has joined together. It literally means to fasten to one yoke. Biblically speaking, marriage is the process of God joining together a man and a woman for a divine reason. The goal of marriage is not about you being happy. That's not the goal of marriage. The goal of marriage is two people coming together, emulating a glorious picture of Jesus and his love for the church and their love and commitment with one another, and then together accomplishing more for the cause of Christ than they could do alone. Do you know that God has staked his reputation on your marriage? Rocky, the great theologian. Rocky Balboa. He said concerning marriage, concerning his union with Adrian. She got gaps. I got gaps. But together, we ain't got no gaps. And ultimately, you're better with a wife. And wives, though you might disagree with me, you are better with your husband. You see, God brings two people together. God joins you together so that her sensitivities match with your strengths and your strengths with her sensitivities, that God brings two people who are different together. Why? Because as a unit, you're more complete to accomplish what Jesus wants. So often what destroys marriages is when we lose sight of this, we focus on ourselves. We focus on what I'm doing as opposed to focusing on what we can do together, not for us, but for Jesus. The final point here is that marriage is sacred. Jesus says, let not man separate. I love the the King James Version. Put asunder. In the Greek, it literally means to divide. Jesus is literally pleading here. He's saying, may it absolutely not be for man to separate something that God has joined together. In many ways, it's as though God is issuing a warning, that Jesus is issuing a warning. Hands off what I've created. You know, we've destroyed a lot of God's creation. Like the world, the way that it works, that God created, it doesn't operate as God designed it. Humanity's really good at messing up what God creates. And so God is in the process of recreating. He's in the process of redeeming. He's in the process of regeneration. But it's as though that what God is saying, you've messed with a lot, man. But when it comes to me joining, creating this union, hands off. This matters to me. The bonds of holy matrimony. You know, I believe that they matter so much to God, which is why we see such a perverted attempt to distort the very thing that God has sanctioned, that God has created. Listen, what's happening in our culture, it's much bigger than just marriage. It's much bigger. Once again, not to derail us, we'll leave more to that to a B-side. Now, it's at this point in the dialogue Jesus has discussed the reason the law permits or provides a concession for divorce. Jesus has explained God's intended purpose behind marriage. 
that Jesus is finally going to answer the Pharisees' question. Now their question, for what lawful reason can a person get divorced? Now if we're left to Mark's account, we're still scratching our head. But if you flip to Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, and I'll read it for you, Jesus following this section of scripture, this is what he says, I say to you, so after he's laid out God's intended purpose behind marriage, he says, I say to you, based upon these things, that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, because the monogamous marital covenant for life depends on the consummated union provided by heterosexual sex, whereby a male and a female become one flesh, sexual immorality, sexually immoral behavior is a justified reason from the perspective of God for divorce for one reason. It attacks, it undermines, it erodes the one fleshness that's essential for the bonds of holy matrimony. And this is what Jesus is saying. So he started, let's get back to the original intent of the law. Then let me explain, according to the original intent of the law, what God means for marriage, what's permissible. It's sexual immorality. And then Jesus continues by reinforcing what's not permissible. Verse 10, in the house. So there's a shift in the scene. The disciples asked Jesus again about the same matter. And so Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, admittedly, this section of scripture, if you're just reading through Mark, it's a head scratcher, right? You read through this and you're like, what, what in the world is Jesus saying? Well, if you place the context by looking back to what's happening in Matthew's account of the same dialogue, things become a little more clear. The Pharisees come to Jesus. They want to know what legal grounds exist for divorce. So Jesus' answer Sexual sin. Now, we should note that you can also build a biblical argument that divorce is also permissible in the case of domestic abuse, child endangerment, and abandonment. But the disciples, they're asking a follow-up question. After Jesus has gone on the record as to what happens to a person who divorces their spouse for a reason other than sexual sin. They're still kind of scratching their head. Okay, Jesus, so you're taking a view that goes against Hillel. It goes against the liberal view. You're saying really that it's only sexual sin? And Jesus answers yes, basically. And then they're wanting to know now what happens because we know a lot of people that have gotten a certificate of divorce for other reasons. So what's your implication here? What's the point? Jesus' answer it reinforces an inescapable reality. One that is not pleasant to hear, but needs to be stated. Divorce has consequences. Divorce without a biblical reason is sin. And remarrying considered by God to be adultery. Now you might go to a judge and claim irreconcilable differences. And that might be fine for our courts, but you need to understand that is not a reason that is viewed by God. It's not recognized by God. Now, I know that's heavy, and I know the natural 
flow of the entire dialogue leads to like, okay, now how do we apply all these things to like actual scenarios? Can we get real here for a moment, Zach? And so I I do, I want to take a moment with just the few minutes we have left. How do we take what Jesus is saying? How do we apply these to scenarios that many of us have faced? First scenario, Zach, I've been cheated on. In my marriage, there has been sexual immorality. I have been cheated on. What should I do? Now, once again, this is providing counseling in a blanketed way without the, the sensitivity of specific situations. So that's not my intent, but I want to try to take what Jesus is saying and apply it so that you get an idea of the deeper implications of what he's, of what he's trying to say. If you've been cheated on, what should you do? If your spouse is remorseful, not sad, not sorrowful, not bummed out he got caught, but genuinely repentive, remorseful, true contrition. And you feel as though, as the person who's been cheated on, that you can find the strength, that you can find the resolve to forgive that person and to work through your issues. If that's you, then it's always better to stay married than to divorce, knowing, what? That our marriage is a picture of something bigger than we are. Not to mention, if Jesus is our spouse, aren't we all guilty of cheating? I mean, aren't we all guilty of having an affair against Jesus when we rebel, when we sin? Jesus, as our spouse, we've cheated on him. But aren't you glad that in his grace and in his forgiveness and in his immense love that he accepts us back? Hey, there's no bigger picture of Jesus and his heart for people than for a spouse who's been cheated on in the presence of real contrition to accept back that spouse. That's a powerful picture of Jesus's love for us. The second scenario, Zach, our marriage is on the rocks and we've been considering divorce. So there's there's no sexual immorality. We're just on the rocks. Irreconcilable differences. Well, this would be my advice. You need to remove immediately divorce from your vernacular. You need to take the option off the table because it is a sin and will not be honored by God. And instead, you need to work on your issues. You should seek godly counseling. You should find accountability. Working through issues is tough. Learn to discuss, not argue. In extreme cases, it's better to to separate for a time with the goal of saving your marriage. Sometimes we need a break. Sometimes that's healthy in extreme cases. So if your marriage is on the rocks for any other reason but sexual immorality, you need to work to save your marriage. Bigger things are at stake than just your marriage. Third, I divorce my spouse for a reason other than sexual immorality, but I have not remarried. Now, this really kind of gets to the question the disciples ask, right? Well, what happens? My advice to you, if you've divorced your spouse for any other reason but sexual immorality with the caveats of abuse and child endangerment and whatnot, this is my advice to you. You need to go to your estranged spouse You need to apologize for whatever role you played in your marriage falling apart, and you need to seek 
reconciliation. That God wants you to remarry. Okay, Zach, I divorced my spouse for a reason other than sexual immorality, and I have remarried. Uh-oh, what happens? What do I do? And this is a logical question from what Jesus is saying. It's an inescapable, undeniable reality. You have committed two sins. According to what Jesus is saying, we can't sugarcoat it. You've committed sin one in the fact that you divorced. You committed sin two in the fact that you remarried another, adultery. However, the other reality is that neither of these two sins are beyond the reach of God's grace and God's forgiveness. I would encourage you to repent, to acknowledge, to ask God to forgive, and then do this. Seek to allow your past mistakes to have a positive influence on your present marriage. I, I would not take the extreme position. You now need to, to divorce the person you've remarried to then try to go back to the person that you divorced originally for a purpose other than sexual immorality. That seems to be nonsense. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and then learn and then grow. These are not unpardonable sins. But then finally, Zach, I was divorced. I was divorced. What do I do? What do I do? Whether you initiated it because of sexual immorality or, or you're just the pure victim of it, that it wasn't even for sexual immorality, your just husband thought the 22-year-old office assistant was prettier. Things happen. It's raw. It's real. So what do I do, Zach? What, is, what does this mean for me? Moses' instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 24 were designed to protect the victim. You can read back through it. It was all about the victim. Moses said a certificate of divorce should be filled out, and then he elaborates for this reason, so that the person who's the victim could move on and marry another. And here in Jesus' dialogue, it seems that God's grace is abundant to the one who's been divorced unjustly. Jesus doesn't reference this person. Whereas his rebuke, his instruction, and his warning seem to be imparted to the divorcee, not the person who's been divorced. And so if you were divorced, what do you do? Well, if your spouse comes seeking forgiveness and reconciliation, give it time and seek the Lord. And if you can take that person back, great. If not, great. You can move on because Jesus loves you and he will provide a husband that will treat you as Jesus treats the church. Now, following servanthood was a lesson on marriage and divorce. And it's not an accident that following a lesson on marriage and divorce, that Jesus turns his attention to the topic of whom? To children. Because aren't always those affl afflicted most through marital conflict our children. So, Father, we thank you for what your word says to us.